Good morning. Okay, um, this is not a Bible. This is a Bible. Uh, Matthew 15, in your Bibles, please. Verse 21 is where we'll be going to the end of the chapter. Matthew 15, verse 21 through 39. And... Uh, if you're new to, to Blackman, visiting, listening, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew and have been for the last year <coughs> and a half. <laughs> so, and we're more than halfway through as a result, which is great. Um, and uh, I, hope, I hope that you're, I hope you're, it's, it's his timeline, it's Jesus' teaching, it's what he wants you to know. Full of the Spirit, writing the word of God, this is what he wants you to know about Jesus. You know, Paul, Paul, all the letters you have over here in the other part of your Bible, he never quotes Jesus. Isn't that interesting? This isn't what he's all about. So that's why we're doing this. We're going right right through Matthew, verse 15 through 21 together. Verse 15, 21, all the way to chapter 15, verse 21, all the way, verse 39. Okay. Uh, I was in a conversation this week, uh, part of my job, to talk to pastors. So I was talking to a pastor about all kinds of things. And it's a local pastor. His church is kind of centrally located, um, metropolitan area. And so we were talking about all the progress and development and the growth of our community here in, in, in the Nashville kind of proper. Um, and he, he was talking about when he'd come here, you know, 40 years ago. He remembered being in a conversation at work talking with people about why they're building this big mall in Franklin, the Cool Springs Galleria. Why are they building it out there? Why are they doing that? I mean, I guess the Brentwoodites don't want to come north into the city to go to their mall. I guess they want them to go south. Like, it was all that kind of, you know, talk, and, which is hilarious because, you know, my house is south of that, and I'm, like, right in the middle of what is basically, you know, south metropolitan uh, Nashville. Um, did you know that uh, at a rate of 15% a year, 15%, okay? So we're on track. If that were to continue, we would add 250,000 new people to our metro, okay? That next year. That's this year okay? if we stayed at that, at that track, which, by the way, is nothing compared to Austin, today, okay? So it could be, <laughs> depending on your perspective... Right? It could be better, or it could be worse. And what is, I'm wondering what your, what your perspective is. I'm, I'm always interested to know, I'm not going to make you stand up and tell me, but I'm always interested to know the way we respond to people are like, whatever, I mean, it's going to happen. Some people are like, can you believe what is happening in this city? And other people are like, can you believe what is happening in this city? Same words. Completely different mentality, right? Completely different sentiment. There are, and it's usually it's the people on the Franklin, Tennessee Facebook page where I live, um, you know, that are like, I can't believe all you Californians are blah, 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 coming, you know, just leave my city alone and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and but that's, those, they're just loud. I don't, I don't think that they're, maybe they are, the, the majority, I don't know. I met a family two months ago to dig down a little bit deeper into this. Uh, they moved to um, Nolansville when they did to get away from it all, whatever that meant in California for her. Okay. Now, Nolansville has gotten way too big for them. Nolansville has gotten too big for them. So they've bought land in McMinnville, 
okay? Now, McMinnville would be big when I am dead. But, but still, it's happened, it's gonna happen, right? It's just, like, that's the mentality, right? So I guess, you know, growth and, and progress and fulfillment in that sense is maybe not, not for everybody, but I, you know, I'll show you my cards. I'll be like, I, I love it. I, I, I do love it. I love that this area of the country where we live is, is being fulfilled, okay? That it's progressing, that it's growing toward its fullness, that people have recognized that what we love about this place, they love too, and they want to be a, be, a, be a part of it. Now, that growth, that change, it requires adjustment, doesn't it? Right? We have to widen roads, build more houses. Uh, we, 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 it requires that adjustment, but that's toward its fullness. It's toward its completeness. It's, it's progress in the direction for which it was made to fulfill, okay? How does that tie into Matthew 15? Well, if you'll remember, back in chapter 13 and 14, Jesus, about 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. And if you remember, that was a revelation of Jesus being the Jewish Messiah. There's bread in the wilderness. There's 12 baskets for each tribe left over. Um, and it, it's, it's all about Jesus fulfilling. John 6 there's a, there are conversations and teaching after this event that happened, in, you can read about it in John 6, where Jesus says as much, that he is the bread of life. He is the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah, okay? Lots of detail. And then we come to Matthew 15, and guess what happens? There's progress. There's growth. There is fulfillment. Jesus is not just for the Jews. He is also for the Gentiles, Okay? So Matthew's been hinting at this throughout. Remember in his genealogy, there, in Jesus' ancestry, there are Gentiles in his ancestry. And from the very beginning of his, in his healing ministry, he was you know, the centurion's daughter. He's, he has been dropping hints that Jesus is not just for the Jews, but he is also for the, for the Gentiles. So that, that's been hinted at as we've gone through um, the, the different um, parts of, of Matthew. But... Um, and in last week, when you, when you think about the, the conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees and their, um, their expectation that you have to keep tradition in order to be right, keep ceremony in order to, to keep yourself right with God, and Jesus pulls in the crowd and says, folks, what goes into you does not defile you. What comes out of you is what defiles you. And, and therefore, what you do on the outside to get yourself cleaned up isn't going to clean up the inside. Well, that is a very, very provocative statement if you're Jewish. Because for all the, all the teaching that the Jews knew from the Pharisees is that you had to go through this ceremony, you had to go through this tradition, you had to keep them faithfully in order to express and have and possess a righteousness that God would accept. And in fact, when Mark tells this story, he says, and with this statement, Jesus said it was completely cool to eat whatever. That's the RTV, Rob Tim's version of the Bible, okay? But that, that was Mark's takeaway from this, okay? And that comes later, and we'll see that later in Acts if we go through Acts. Okay, so with, with, with that kind of mentality, that there's progress and there's fulfillment and there's, and there's growth, Jesus takes his ministry away from Galilee, and he goes 25 to 30 miles out into a new area of Tyre and Sidon, 
which is a predominantly Gentile community, which he's not done yet in his ministry, but now is the time of growth. Now is the time of progress. Now is the time of fulfillment. And I want to show it to you in verses 21 through 30, 39. And there'll be, because this is a Baptist church, there'll be three points that we want to take away, okay, for, for all of us this, this morning. Okay, so the best way to do this, because it's a narrative, I'm going to read and stop and explain, read and explain, read and explain, just back and forth. So we'll go really quick. Ready? Look at verse 21. When Jesus left there, it's the Galilee area, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus has been in a very Jewish area, and he's experienced rejection in Nazareth, in his hometown, and opposition from Jewish leaders. Jesus, making this statement about it's not what's on the outside that defiles you, it's what's on the inside, opens up this door theologically to the fact that, that maybe it's something else other than religiosity, something else other than ceremony, something else other than works that makes you right before God. Jesus puts his money where his mouth is and goes 30 miles out to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is a very Gentile area. Actually, it's worse than that. It's not just Gentile. It's actually enemy territory. Um, if you, um, and it's been enemy territory. Long, all the way back. It's, you know what it is? It's Canaan. So I want you to put that in your Exodus noggin, all right? You go, one of the best examples of this is if you go to 1 Kings 16, King Ahab, picture of perfection he was, he's taken the throne of Israel. And the, the writer of 1 Kings is like, this guy was really bad. And if, it's, if him being bad isn't bad enough, he married Jezebel which is why we associate such negativity with the word Jezebel. Not, lots of people name their children after biblical characters. Jezebel is not one of them that gets, that gets named uh, often. Um, but you, and you know why? She's from Sidon. She's Sidonian. She worshipped Baal. And that's what made it so bad that King Ahab read her. Incidentally, if you keep reading, where does Elijah serve the widow? Sidon. A Gentile, a Canaanite who worshiped Baal. Okay? Pretty, pretty cool stuff. And now Jesus is doing the same thing. Verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that region. Underline the word Canaanite. That's not just regional because then it would say from that region. There, you know, there's a reason to say that, right? Canaanite is both a religious and an ethnic word for you, is a clue as to what's getting ready to take place in this conversation. Okay? These are enemies. Historically, not personally, but as far as people groups go and regions go, this is a two enemies talking to each other, not to mention the gender boundaries that are being crossed in this conversation. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. So Jesus is first... Recorded encounter in a gent in this Gentile territory apparently is quite familiar with Judaism. Lord, son of David, she calls out, right? It reminds me of the woman at the well in John 4, the Samaritan woman. Only this woman is not only theologically competent, she already believes something about Jesus and is already acting toward him to act on her behalf. Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Have mercy 
on me. Now, how, how will Jesus respond? You've read Matthew 1 through 14. How would Jesus respond? Up until this point, the only people who've had a negative interaction with Jesus were the religious people who didn't need Jesus. They were quite content in their own self-righteousness, and in fact, they opposed Jesus. And even those who have admired him but could not get comfortable with hundred times, desperate people, the people like this woman who believe in Jesus, it's them that experience the kingdom realities in their life. We should expect right away Jesus to do what he's been doing in Matthew 4 through 14, which is to say, yes, I will have mercy on you. I will have compassion on you. So how will he respond? Look at verse 23. Uh, Time out. This is one of those passages that preachers skip because they don't go right through a book of the Bible. There was a time this week where I would have loved to not be going through a book of the Bible with this passage. Okay, and we'll probably have more. I just wanted you to know that this is, you may not have heard this preached in 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 the church before. Okay, look at verse 23. Jesus did not say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, send her away because she's crying out. Apparently isn't about to let that stop her. So she keeps crying out to him and the disciples, seeing that Jesus isn't responding to this woman, urge him to send her away. Now that could mean a lot of things, right? Dicey biblical interpretation sometimes, okay? Send her away could mean send her away by granting her request so she'll leave. They have seen Jesus do this time and time and time again. It could be send her away because you don't have any intent to do anything for her. Jesus' response in verse 24 makes me think that they assumed Jesus would grant a request. Look what he says to the disciples. Verse 24 is to the disciples, although she can hear it. I'm going to come to that in a minute. She's right there. Jesus replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right. So the English here, Jesus was talking directly to and only to his disciples, but that's not the case. He's talking to her too. She's right there. He's talking to the Canaanite, the woman, the Sidonian, who is calling him the son of David to heal her demon-possessed daughter. Everybody's in the conversation, but Jesus is directing his comment in verse 24 to her. Have mercy, son of David. A demon is tormenting my daughter. Have mercy on me over and over and over and over and over and over. And the disciples look at Jesus and they say, would you please send this woman away either by granting a request or just send her away because she is driving us crazy. And Jesus answers her in full plain view of his disciples and says, I'm Jewish. You're Gentile, right? So what's going on here? Well, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say no. He's got a theological reply, but his reply is not, sorry, 
I only heal Jews right now. That's not been the case. We've read Matthew. And as we'll see in a bit, it's certainly not the case now. But Jesus also doesn't say, yes, sorry, I had my headphones in. He doesn't say that, right? He's up to something, okay? There's plenty of nuanced discussions about what exactly Jesus was up to. And I think when we come to verse 28, it will be super clear what Jesus is doing here. So I'm just going to tell you, so that because I know the suspense is killing you, right? Jesus is testing her and prompting her into a meaningful conversation about who he is and who, what he is all about. Jesus wants to see just what kind of faith this is. So he tells her. She's begging, and she's begging. And he says, you, you, know, you call me son of David. I, I was sent, I'm the Jewish guy. I was sent to the, to the house of Israel. He's testing her faith. And look how she responds in verse 25. She came. And she knelt before him, which means he is no longer walking. And she said, Lord, help me. What was it that Peter said back in chapter 14 when he was sinking in the water? Lord, save me, right? And what did Jesus say to Peter when they got back in the boat? Why did you doubt you of what? Little faith, right? And now, a chapter or two later, we have a Gentile in a male society being tested by Jesus in verse 24 and responding with even more desperation and more faith. How will Jesus respond? Look at verse 26 and 27. 26. Jesus answered, It isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What in the world? <laughs> and now you can see why so many pastors skip this passage. Okay. Well, let me first say that on the surface and without any context, this would be a very harsh statement of Jewish privilege. It would be a hard-line view of Jewish privilege. But we do have context, right? And so we know that Jesus is not speaking harshly about how privileged it is to be Jewish, but instead he is leaning in on his test of this woman's faith. Think about it. This is not a hard, this is not a stretch. I think this is reality. She's relentlessly called out to him to save her daughter, so much so that the disciples are annoyed. And Jesus tests her with, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel. And to that, she gets on her knees, and at his feet, she urges him. And then he cites consensus. You know where you live. You know the times that we're in. You know the history and he gives her consensus not in a derogatory way and not with an intent to hurt her, not with an intent to dismiss her, but in a reverse psychology kind of way, he tests if she really believes Jesus to be who she clearly believes him to be and who he actually is. And you see this in verse 27 because she passes the test with, yes, Lord, that is reality. I understand the reality. Yet even the dogs, the Gentiles, eat crumbs that fall from their master's table. 
Well, how could they do that? Well, they have to believe that the master would give it to them. Woman, your faith is great. That's what he's after. That's what he knows. That's what, he's, that's what he wants to see. He wants to see her great faith in the great God. And he says, therefore, let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment on, her daughter was healed. Only this woman, who's a Canaanite, and the centurion of Matthew 8 are publicly praised for their faith by Jesus. In the gospel accounts, Jesus never looks at a Jew and says, you have great faith. He looks at a Roman soldier and a Canaanite woman. The woman knew who Jesus was. She believed that he could help her, and he placed and she placed her confidence in him, and she appealed to Jesus solely on the basis of mercy, and she was persistent, and she would not allow herself to be easy. G. Tasker, that's when you know you're smart, like, and you're British. You have, you know, three initials, not, you know, R.L. Timms, or it's R.V.G. Tasker. All right, that's, you're probably pretty important. It's, he's, I think it's the very, very reverend R.V.G. Tasker, something like that, I'm sure, right? This is what he said about her faith. She does not stay to argue that her claims are as good as anyone else's. She does not discuss whether Jew or Gentile is better, or if Gentile is good or a Jew, or whatever. She does not dispute the justice of the mysterious ways by which God has worked out His divine purpose through the Jewish people. All she knows is that her daughter is tormented, and she needs supernatural help. And here in the person of the Lord, the son of David is the one who can actually do it, and she's confident that even if she's not entitled to sit down at the Messiah's table, she might be able to be allowed to receive something of his uncovenanted mercies. And so she asked. And Jesus says, you have great faith. Let it be done as you have asked. That's incredible. So what? Well, here are my three points. Okay. Number one, and this is the hardest one, you and I have to pray for and work after a great faith. We have to work and pray for a great faith. Now, here's what's hard about that. It's like, you know, Lord, teach me patience. <laughs> you know what that requires, right? Situations in which you have to endure longer than you're currently capable. You can't learn to be long-suffering without doing some short-suffering and then some longer and then some longer and then some longer and then some longer. Okay, So to, to pray for great faith inevitably means being put into positions where that faith is required. Which is one of the reasons why we probably don't grow in our faith very much. Because we don't like those situations. We just don't. And yet here's a woman with great faith. She has no other basis, no other, re- no other basis to, for her to feel like she's entitled to this opportunity. She's got nothing. She has great faith. Faith. And the great faith in Jesus is rewarded with his work in our lives. Okay? The result of our faith may not be what we want, but his answer to our faith will always be what he wants, and he is always working for our good and his glory. Always. His work in our lives is for our good and is for his glory, and we can only experience that through great faith, which is exemplified for us in a Canaanite woman.
Number two, the gospel is for everybody. John Ryle, another British theologian, less important than RBG Tasker, hence by his name, said, it is grace, not place, that makes people believers. It is grace, not place. Brian Loritz put it more strongly. The great marvel of the gospel is that hell, excuse me, because it's not position or geography, it's grace. It was the Canaanite woman who believed, and strongly. And it was the people of Nazareth, where Jesus was born and raised, who did not believe. There's no type of person who cannot come to faith, and we aren't even capable of knowing whether or not someone is too far gone. John Newton, amazing grace. I have never despaired of any man since God saved me. A lot of humility in that. And that includes all of us. You may think, maybe you think you're too far gone. Maybe you think that you're too sinful, too rebellious, too self-righteous for Jesus to care for you. But that's wrong. If she can come, if a Gentile, quote, dog, unquote, can come, you can come. Matthew eleven twenty eight. I remind you. Come all as in John 6, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. We've read, the whole, we've read half the gospel so far. Every hurting person, every sick person, every afflicted person that comes to him is taken in by him. He may test you to see if you believe, but he will not drive you away. And he won't do anything, for, he won't do any less for you than he didn't do for anybody that we've read about in this gospel so far. So the gospel's for everybody. It's for everybody. There's not a person in this world that you know that the gospel's not for. There's not a person type, even all the Californians. Okay. I, I'm kidding. And then lastly, this. The gospel does not change, but we must change to reach others with it. The gospel doesn't change, but we must reach others. We must change to reach others with it which takes us all the way back to the beginning of our sermon this morning. <clears throat> Jesus, and that Gentile part was not super clear to the Jews who first believed in Jesus. And even the bulk of Jesus' ministry is to the Jews because that's, that's got to happen. That's, that's got to be accomplished. But even along the way of Jesus' ministry, there were Gentiles. And when the early church figured this out, as you can read about in the gospel in the story of Acts, it really caught on, and it changed everything to make the mission happen. It changed everything. Paul's letters, the book of Acts, are a, a narrative of how the church changed to reach the world, okay? which can mean a lot of things for us, right? You might have to use a porta john if you want to grow a church. You might want to just walk past your kids, get grass stains on their pants every Sunday after church because there's a football game that happens out here. Usually, trees get climbed, uh, dogs get fed treats through the gate. you got to be willing, right? You may have to actually walk in the rain to get from Sunday school to church here, okay? But those are sacrifices that are required to do what we already want to do, and that's reach the city, right? If you're going to make an impact in the top ten growing metropolis of the world, in the world's most powerful nation... You can't just 
stay the same. You have to change. You have to progress. You have to fulfill. The gospel won't change, but the methods and the sacrifices and the choices will require us to change, to progress, to fulfill, to obey. Right? I'm not worried about you all. Okay? You all will lay traps for skunks on a Friday night so that we can have Sunday school without holding our nose. Okay? Somebody did that this week for our church, by the way. Okay? You all will do what it takes to actively contextualize the gospel. Seeing you do it, you're going to keep doing it. And Jesus models that for us here. He's for the Jew. But you know what, guys? I've been rejected by my own people. We're going to Canaan. And we're going to be a light to the people who were our former enemies. Man, that's powerful. Jesus brought change, progress, and fulfillment. And that's what we got to do too. Let's pray together. <clears throat> so Lord, first let's just um, give you thanks that we who believe do so by grace, not by place. That you have looked at the, the, the middle class white guy and all, all the bell curve, the options around that. I mean, you, you, there's just not a person, a type of person, a background that's not accepted by you who come with nothing, who do not bring tradition, who do not bring privilege, who, who do not bring self-righteousness, who do not bring sin. Like, we just, we just come as we are, and you accept us as we are, and you forgive us for all forms of, of rebellion against you. Like, you just accept us. There's no no thing that we have that can actually prevent us from being accepted by you because you have paid the price for all of that and you just accept us. It's grace. It's not anything else. And so if there's anybody in this in today that's listening that, that would come to the conclusion that they don't need you because they're good enough, that that kind of rebellion would be squelched and that you would break their hearts to, to want and long for the righteousness of Jesus, not the righteousness of self. And if there's anybody that, that's, uh, that, has, that hears this idea of, of grace and decides, you know, um, or thinks, um, I, I don't need any obvious sin that doesn't look moral but is clearly immoral, we ask that you, that they, they, you would break their hearts as well and, and, and bring them to yourself. That they would not think, I'm, I'm just too bad. There's, there's no such person. And make us a church that wants to reach both of those progress and growth. Help us, Lord, do it in Jesus' name. Amen.